In the Know with Bernstein Research. Welcome to In the Know with Bernstein Research. In this series, we discuss investment controversies together with what is top of mind and in the news with Bernstein's research analysts, who are in the know. Our disclosures can be found at the end of this and every episode. I'm Sid Mulcahy from Bernstein's Toronto office, and with me today is our global hotels and leisure analyst, Richard Clark, who is based in London. We're going to discuss one of my favorite topics, travel. We'll parse through how the pandemic has reshaped the industry, why sky-high hotel prices might be stickier than you think, and despite tech grabbing all the headlines for disruption, there's plenty of disruption happening right here in the travel industry as we speak. Given summer travel season is upon us, Richard will also help us figure out the best place and the best way to book a hotel at the cheapest price. With that, Richard, welcome. Thanks, Sid. I guess it's always the advantage of being the travel analyst that I can be just back from enjoying my own sector. You just don't get that with the healthcare analysts, I guess. (laughs) That's fantastic. Nobody wants to go for those hospital visits. (laughs) No, no, no. I can do it. The field research for me is a lot more fun. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. Well, why don't you set the stage for us? So, you know, you've got a lot of industries that have fundamentally changed post-pandemic. We're even doing this over different locations. You're in London. I'm in Toronto. Zoom has gone completely mainstream. Hybrid work has gone mainstream. How has the pandemic really changed travel? Great question, Sid. So, I mean, look, I mean, you've obviously got two types of travel going on in the world. You've got uh, leisure travel. You've got business travel. Uh, Leisure travel is, is booming. You know, any horror stories you hear about Airbnb prices collapsing are normally not true. And to the extent they are true, they're, they're really being caused by the fact that Americans are beginning to spread their wings and, and, and travel overseas and, and leaving a small vacuum back home. But leisure travel is very strong. It, it always has been strong. People love to travel. It's grown ahead of GDP pretty much every year. There's not a recession. Um, but I think three years of not being able to travel has, has made people appreciate it more. And, and, and leisure travel is really strong. Business travel is lagged, but it's coming back. You know, the transient side of business travel, the sort of day-to-day business travel is, is really back. And, you know, this idea that we're going to see a 40, 50% cut to business travel just hasn't happened. You know, actually, technology makes you more mobile, not less mobile. Is Zoom hurt travel? No, it's made it stronger. You can do your meetings from anywhere. With virtual backgrounds, I could be sitting in the Maldives, the Seychelles. I'm not. I'm in our London office, but I could be. And I'm actually more mobile than I was pre-pandemic. I guess that's like the long-term trend, but, you know, switching gears to short-term, everyone just keeps talking about a recession and you look at every hotel, it's booked. You look at every restaurant, it's booked. Anywhere you go, everything is booked. Why does travel seem to be bucking the trend of all this recessionary talk and all these recessionary pressures that you see elsewhere in the economy right now? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's worth pointing out that the sort of volume of, of certainly leisure travel uh, in the past has actually been surprisingly resilient. Um, and maybe it's just that the travel companies have, have not had the confidence to keep their pricing high. And so they've kind of doubled down on, on weak demand with weak pricing as well. So part of it is that the pricing has stayed strong and that's, you know, offset any demand weakness there might be. But there really isn't much demand weakness. Um, You know, you are seeing consumers choose services over goods. You know, you can only buy a Peloton once, but if you don't use your holiday in a year, you lose it. So people are prioritizing their travel. They haven't been able to do it for a few years. But I think it's also worth pointing out that travel is a luxury pursuit. You know, 50% of travel spend in the US is done by the top two deciles. And those two top two, three deciles are still flush with pandemic cash. They've still got money to spend. Our luxury analyst likes to say no one wants to be the richest person in the graveyard anymore. So it is a luxury pursuit. And, and across a lot of sectors, um, that higher end spend is continuing to prove uh, resilient. 
You know, one of the concerns I always have with hotels is that the point that you just made, which was prices, prices seem incredibly sticky. I mean, uh, an investment heuristic that I always have is whenever you see a meme about something, that's the time where you're probably at peak and I keep seeing hotel pricing memes everywhere. Have we sort of reached the peak of pricing? Do you think they're going to be sticky and sustainable from here? I believe so. I mean, I think it's worthwhile, you know, breaking down the facts here and maybe Sid, you're, you're giving away the fact that you're, a, a, you know, a high end luxury traveler, because actually, if you look at mainstream hotels, real pricing is not up very much. You know, the average price point of a US hotel is only up sort of like mid to high teens above where it was in 2019, which is pretty much in line with inflation. The exceptions to that have been a few pockets of extreme demand, um, uh, some states like Arizona and Florida and, and some other parts of the world that really benefited from domestic demand, and they may lose a little bit of that. And then the other pocket has been luxury hotels. Higher-end hotels have massively grown their pricing ahead of inflation. But I think if you compare them not with other hotels and you compare them with other luxury products, again, there's nothing that unusual for it. The truth is, back in 2018, 2019, luxury hotels were a bargain compared to other luxury goods. They won't be anymore, but I think the prices can stay there. Interesting. You know, I travel with my family to Europe every summer, and one noticeable absence last year, I think, was that Asian travelers did not come. They were still relatively locked down. This year, I was surprised to see, you know, sort of the exact same. It was a lot of Canadian tourists, a lot of European tourists, a lot of U.S. tourists. Why has Asia's reopening, and particularly China, why has that not followed the rest of the world? There's one big technical barrier, which has been the closure of Russian airspace. Unfortunately, because of that, it's added about four or five hours to the flight time from someone going from Tokyo to, say, Paris or London. Um, same from China. And so that has just made local destinations more palatable. You know, you may as well wait for that airspace to reopen. So that's been a big factor. It's cut down a lot of the air capacity. It's cut down a lot of the air demand because you've got to circumvent Russia, which is a, a huge country. The other side is there has been a little bit of a backlog in terms of, you know, visas and passports coming out of China. And maybe the first trip they want to take is still that domestic trip. You know, China was the last to open in every other market. Domestic recovered quicker. We wrote a note back in 2021, which was sort of speculating potentially that one of the lasting impacts of COVID could be the weaponization of tourism by governments. I don't think we can conclude that's happening yet, but, you know, it does happen in other industries. You know, when you are a big buyer of a product or a big seller of a product, you do tend to be able to weaponize that in some way, put restrictions on it and use that to raise your global influence. Is that still potentially a risk? It could be. China is the biggest net spender on tourism. Could it use that in a way to influence the world? It's possible. I don't think that's happening yet. I think Russian airspace visas, passports are much more likely, but it's certainly a factor we need to look out for. Incredible. It's fascinating that luxury travel, as well as like Louis Vuitton handbags, as well as Estee Lauder, all of these things are something that you know a lot of Chinese and Asian tourists typically consume. Are we seeing any shift in behaviors, whether it's Chinese tourists going more, as you mentioned, domestic travel. So are they going more to Macau? Are they going to Vietnam, Philippines, Japan, Australia? Are they keeping it more local? How has that changed since things have reopened? 
I mean, they always did. I mean, 75 percent of, uh, of, of Chinese outbound travel was within, uh, you know, neighboring countries of, of China and a huge percentage of it, something like 50 percent of travel outside of China was to Hong Kong and, and Macau. And so it, it always was very, very domestically focused. And, and that is probably remains one of the most exciting opportunities. If you look how many new hotels Cambodia and Vietnam need, if you extrapolate forward the Chinese travel to those markets, it's a huge number. Is it staying more domestic? Probably a little bit in the short term because of some of those trends we talked to. But no, I think that there's only one Venice. There's only one Paris. There's only one Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, there's only one CN Tower. There's still going to be a huge demand to go and see those destinations. One of the things that I love about your research is all the pictures that you end up showing from all of these hotels. Just the padded out, Sid. Just the padded out. <laughs> Had to. Uh, especially when I look at Asian brands, especially US domiciled brands that are in Asia that look completely different. It's almost the dichotomy between like US infrastructure relative to Asian infrastructure. Everything looks new. Everything looks beautiful. Everything looks fantastic. Just out of curiosity, what's your favorite Asian hotel? Uh, I mean, I look, I haven't stayed in a, in a huge number of Asian hotels and I can't remember the name of this one particularly, but I stayed on one that was on a sort of private island just off the Vietnamese uh, coast. It was pretty, pretty spectacular. And I think I remember most about that was being on a, a boat that went to this floating restaurant where they had a cornucopia of the ocean. You know, there was sharks and turtles. I ate neither of those, but lots of different exotic fishes you could try. A very, very memorable experience that you could only really get to from this uh, hotel off the Vietnamese coast. Uh, so, but you're right. I mean, if you look at the most spectacular hotels that are being built in the world, uh, they're in Qatar, they're in Dubai, they're in Macau. You know, there's a gold, looks like a gold plated raffles being built in Macau. You know, this is where the best hotels in the world are being built is in these markets. It's not in Europe, really. It's not in the US these days. There might be one Golden Gate Bridge. There might be one CN Tower, but it sounds like you described a lot of one-off experiences there. I think you've just sort of pointed to this, but how do you think travel and the travel industry is going to change going forward? Look, I think people are more flexible. I think that's here to stay. I mean, I think every organization is trying to set a policy that creates a happy medium. But I think what has completely changed is the stigma around working from home and working from anywhere. I mean, I think these days, in 2018, 2019, if, if I told my boss, I'm going to a conference on Thursday, I'm going to stay on in the hotel on Friday just so I can stay there for the weekend, he would have said, you're taking that Friday off as, as vacation because there's, you're not going to get any work done in the hotel. Now we've all proven that we can. We're suddenly much more flexible to add on a day of holiday or add on a day's uh, work to, to whichever trip you're going on. I think that flexibility is a real change in what's going on. And I think when we look at, say, you know, a lot of countries in the world, America, Australia, India, Japan, these travelers did not take their full vacation allowances uh, in 2019, probably because these were hardworking countries and, you know, there was a culture of being there. That's kind of gone away. If you look at those countries and think, well, an American, instead of leaving those eight days of vacation on the, on, on the table, is willing to take them and maybe they blend it with a bit of work while they're there, that's huge upside. You know, so I think you sort of say like, you know, everyone was right that COVID changed travel, would change travel. What they get wrong is that COVID's made it better, not worse. The Roaring Twenties are here to stay. <laughs> um, Possibly. <laughs> all of this incremental demand that COVID has created, what other changes have you seen that have occurred in this industry? Maybe it's COVID related, maybe it's prior to that, but I've noticed a huge change in the way that people book now for hotels. How has that booking journey changed in the past decade? 
Yeah, I mean, look, I think it, there's been an ongoing shift towards people, you know, wanting to book online. You know, they, you don't have to go back that far for the fact that I think if you went back to 1994 and you looked in the UK, 80% of leisure travel outside of the UK was package travel. And a large percentage of that, well over 50% of that would have been booked offline, i.e. in person at a, at a physical travel agent. So, you know, over the last 20 years, you've seen a massive growth in independent travel and you've seen a massive growth of, of the online booking of that of that independent travel, which has been facilitated by things like low-cost airlines, uh, but also the, the OTAs. And the OTAs have been the pioneers of, of online travel. But what we've begun to see is the underlying industry catch up. It's a bit like Netflix. Netflix was the pioneer of of streaming, but now every uh, studio is launching its own streaming platform. That's what we're now seeing is, you know, why can't Marriott self-distribute? Why can't IHG or Hilton or, you know, one of these other companies self-distribute? So what we expect to begin to see is that the online change is there to stay. But you'll just see more and more incentives to go and book that hotel direct. You'll get better service. You'll get better perks. You'll get better optionality if you book direct. So we, we expect that will be the transition that we'll begin to see um, over the coming years as, as people book more. And people want flexibility. They want to know more about what they're staying. These, these are changes that are coming out of COVID. People didn't really care about whether the booking was flexible or not that much. You know, people just cared about the price and the location. Now, lots of survey data point to the fact that they want more flexibility. And you tend to get that flexibility more if you've got that direct relationship with the underlying property. Okay. Outside of that flexibility, outside of that extra choice, I feel like people do also look for price, as you mentioned. Is the hotel website the best place to go? Where is the best place to go for pricing? Price integrity is a, is a is a topic we could talk about for for hours. I mean, it should be. I mean, that's the truth. Any hotel that's that's self distributing, you know, that should be the best price you find it because they're not paying anyone a a, a third party commission and they've they've got good control on wholesale rates and and conference rates and airline rates and things like that. Then it absolutely should be the case. The best price should be if you go direct. I think the airlines are quite good at that. The hotel companies are not as good and independent hotels are absolutely terrible at it. You know, it's very often you can find a cheaper rate um, elsewhere. There are lots of different options. Google has become a major force, you know, and I'd say probably overall, uh, with a few exceptions like companies like Hopper that do get some very, very good prices uh, via their model. You know, Google has become the sort of search of search and probably become your most likely place to work out where is the cheapest price to book a hotel. If I was to go on to Google, and I feel like a lot of my searches begin with Google, if that's the world that we start off with, who ends up losing in that type of environment? Yeah, I mean, certainly the obvious answer would be anyone that that had a lot of traffic but didn't have very good pricing. The truth is that probably is the OTAs, you know, booking and Expedia. They they are addressing that. Um, you know, booking has is, is, has been on a, a big mission over the last about six years to take much more control over its pricing, avoid being undercut by either the direct option or or another party, and they they've referred to that. But that that's had its own impact. Those are probably the organizations that used to enjoy being at the top of the funnel. You know, you would automatically go to booking. A lot of hotels were only available through booking or Expedia. Now you've got a, a bigger choice via Google. And for some hotels, what they're working out is that they don't need the OTAs at all. It's not that common, but some hotels are now saying, well, why don't we just solely distribute on Google and, and, and therefore avoid all, all OTA commissions as a result? It's amazing. Google always just kind of continues to eat the world one advertising channel after the next. You know, one of the things that I was also pretty impressed by, and I know that you've been pushing this quite a bit, is that hotels 
their business model has completely changed. If you go back 10 or 20 years, they were just simply branding companies. And then they've turned into franchising companies. And all of a sudden, they've turned into platform companies. How did this happen? And where do you see the next evolution for hotels? It's a great question. So, I mean, look, every big hotel company started off as hoteliers. You know, they all started off as uh, as owning and operating the hotels themselves, and that's where they they got their start. I think what what became clear is the scale that model as travelers became more international and to have a a sort of waterfront presence, they needed to go asset light. You know, they needed to follow a management or a franchise business model. If you look at Marriott, the world's biggest hotel company, and you were to add up the real estate value of all the hotels that carry a Marriott brand, you'd get to a realized state value that's like twice that of Walmart. You know, there's no way that they could raise the capital to become that big. They needed third-party capital to become the, the scale that they are today. But I also think there was a sort of separation of skills. You know, running a property portfolio and running a hotel portfolio are not necessarily uh, the same set of skills. A property company might want all their hotels in New York, but a, a hotel company wants hotels everywhere. What then happens, I suppose, is they branded companies, they, they have their brands, they roll those out. And if you look at the adverts of a, of a hotel in the 1970s, when, when Asset Light was already becoming the primary business model, it was all around consistency of service. The internet changes that. You don't need to know what the brand above the door is to know that it's a good hotel. I can find out everything I need to know about a hotel through TripAdvisor, Google, Booking, Expedia. I don't need the brand to tell me that. So the C-Corps then need to, the hotel companies need to evolve again. And you're right, they become platforms. Their USP becomes not branding, but probably distribution and and the the loyalty scheme that puts them together. And to some extent, they are really helped in this process by the existence of the OTAs because the OTAs booking and Expedia become so powerful that they can get their commission rates up to 20-30%. And the only way that a hotel can avoid paying such high commissions is to have that collective bargaining power that the brands give. So that allows them to provide a distribution model that actually saves hotels money while still being able to charge them a fee on top of them. Everywhere I look, it feels like I see some part of the Marriott or the Hilton chain that's somehow associated with these platforms. How much more runway can they grow? Aren't they already pretty saturated? Yeah, I mean, look, I think, first of all, hotel demand's pretty robust. I mean, you look, the global middle-class population grows at about 4% a year. If you look at how much airline capacity Boeing and Airbus are going to put into the world, that's going to grow at about 4% a year. Um, and they, those companies plus the airlines are pretty good um, at filling that. So you're, you're looking at lodging demand growing at about 4% a year. And, and, and that's on a global basis. You then add up, you know, Hilton, Marriott, Hyatt, IHG, Accor, what I would call the kind of big five global organizations, and you're still actually less than 20% market share. You Yes, they're much higher than that in the US, but on a global basis, they're much smaller, but the brands resonate everywhere. So they've got that opportunity in all markets. So they're they're growing from 20% into a demand environment that's growing at 4% a year. So they can easily keep growing at the 5 to 6% growth rate they've been growing at and not begin to push it up against global demand for decades and decades and decades. So I would say on a global basis, still a huge runway of growth still to come. And what's made those brands successful in the US pretty much applies everywhere in the world. With all this increased travel demand, I always wonder, how does vacation rentals fit in? The Airbnbs of the world, the VRBOs, do those start to eat away at the hotels or are they, you know, tam expansive if you want to put it that way? Yeah, I mean, look, I think a bit, but I think actually if we go back to the years 
pre-COVID, you know, 2015 to 2019, that's the really the years when Airbnb started growing very rapidly. Hotel occupancy pretty much went up every year in that period. So it's hard to sort of say that the, uh, the, 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 the vacation rentals were eating the hotel's lunch. They weren't destroying the business model. I would say actually what you had in the lodging market is an excess of demand coming over supply. If you went pre-2007, 2008, actually hotel supply was growing at about 4% a year. It could fulfill the demand growth. If you look at the years post the financial crisis, so 2009 through to about 13, 14, 15, there was a big occupancy recovery. So excess hotel capacity, the increased occupancy could fulfill the lodging demand. Then from about 2015, you have this gap. You know, Hotels are, are pretty full. They're only growing supply at 2 2.5% a year, but demand's still growing at 4% a year. You need something else. And the, the only elastic supply out there is people's homes. And so that's where the vacation rental product really begins to gain share. And I think that dynamic continues to go on. So really what you're seeing is that the vacation rentals are eating the excess demand. They're not taking away directly the share from hotels. There's just more lodging demand growth than there is hotel supply growth. I hate to bring a personal anecdote in this, but I feel like anecdotes, you know, shape our view of the world. And I get this a lot from Twitter as well. So I feel like I'm not alone, but you have one bad experience on Airbnb, whether it is incredible cleaning fees that are just through the roof, or you've got a host that gives you insane restrictions. Like, you know, you have to take out the garbage, you have to do X, Y, and Z, you have to clean the bathroom floors, you have to do virtually everything. Does that sort of experience damage the brand a little bit. And, you know, with that, the pricing with Airbnb has gotten so crazy. Doesn't it just make sense to stay in a hotel? To match your anecdote with one of my own, I've just, I mean, in the last week, uh, I've been in a, a beautiful converted farmhouse in the, uh, in the volcanic region of Spain. Uh, no cleaning fee. Didn't have to clean it myself. Great experience. Very little restrictions on what I can do. So, so what you're explaining is, is largely a North American phenomenon. Is it true that the cleaning fees got a little bit out of hand? Yes. And I think that Airbnb are beginning to address that. They're providing a little bit more transparency. And I think as they learn what the right cleaning fee is by facilitating a little bit more of the cleaning themselves, they will actually punish hosts that, that are overcharging, that they're gouging, that you know we know that it costs $75 to clean a one-bedroom apartment in San Francisco, so you can't charge $250 to do that. So I think they'll begin to address that. They'll begin to punish those that are price gouging. But they'll also provide a lot more information. So I think they're going to make it much clearer what you need to do on checkout. So you know that before you check in. So those that are put off by that will be able to select those that are not onerous. You know, you don't have to do a deep clean and, and full disinfection of the entire property before you leave. So I, I think they are. there was some issues there. I think they're being addressed. And, you know, the, the growth is still very robust. So for the small number of consumers, the small number of Twitter commentators that have been put off by this, I think there's plenty others that are still having a great experience. And on a per person basis, you know, Airbnb is, still tends to be much better value for money. If you're going as a group of four, a group of five, you're staying for a long period of time. It's still a good value for money proposition. I don't know where the technology is on this podcast, but in the show notes, I would love to see this farmhouse, a picture of it. <laughs> I'd love to see the Raffles Hotel that you mentioned. The, the <laughs> Vietnamese experience this is all fantastic. Can I ask you the same question on Airbnb that I asked you on hotels? So I get the demand side. What about the supply side? Are there a lot more rental opportunities out there? Or has anyone who want to put their house as an Airbnb, have they already done it? 
Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, I mean, if, if one was to look at our thesis, it, it, a lot of it is going to come from emerging markets where penetration is much, much lower than it is in, say, the US. So, so a lot of this is around a catch up in terms of the, the penetration levels. But even if you looked in, the, in North America, four and a half percent of homes uh, in North America are second homes. Only one and a half percent of homes in North America are listed on Airbnb. So there is still a massive opportunity for more people just to even list their second homes on Airbnb. And those already exist. Those aren't waiting to be investment opportunities. They're already there. I think via things like rooms, which is more about renting out spare rooms and standardizing that product, and then Airbnb friendly apartments, which is basically where you the landlord is in cahoots with you. So it's all bona fide. You're allowed to rent it out. You're allowed to sublet it. You know, this also provides more supply even for non-second homes. So yes, I think there is still plenty of, uh, of excess supply. And I suppose one way to look at this is in the US, we're talking about one and a half percent of homes are listed on, on Airbnb. In France, it's four. In Orlando, it's 18 percent. In Mission Beach in San Diego, it's 30 percent. Where there is demand, more supply comes to match it. Makes sense. It's amazing how we've talked about this industry that seems really old, but there's still a lot of technology and a lot of disruption that's occurring. Obviously, I, I think I have to ask one about chat GPT and AI and how that's going to change the entire industry. Will I at some point be able to book or go through a search bar, type in, hey, I've got two kids, a vacation in Italy, where are the best places to go, create my vacation? Is that the future of travel? Look, I think you'll be able to do it. The question is, do you want to do it? I'm long enough in the tooth that I remember that we were told that voice search was going to replace uh, text-based search, and it never did. The point is you need some sort of visual stimulation to book your travel. So the idea that you're going to type that in and just accept the response is wrong, but it's, it's also not what the consumer wants. There's lots of you know, analysis that shows that consumers really enjoy researching travel. In fact, some consumers prefer researching travel than actually traveling itself. So the idea that people want to shortcut this is not true. They like doing the consideration. I think you'll be able to do it. Some people will do it. But I actually think that AI's role in travel will much move more around filtering. So, you know, at the moment, filtering is pretty restrictive. You know, I go on to Airbnb, say, I have to say I want a three bedrooms, but three bathroom place uh, with EV charging and a swimming pool. But I might have a whole bunch of other criteria. I want to be 500 meters from the beach. I want the temperature to be above 30 degrees. I want kids play equipment. I want to be walkable to a town. You know, there's lots of other things that I might want to filter for that I think AI could enable me to do, make that whole filtering process more conversational, but you still select it yourself. You still research, you still get the visual stimulation. And then the other part is, is customer service. You know, I think there, there's a big barrier around customer service. You know, people don't want to employ a lot of people to answer the phone. So a lot of people will complain that customer service has been terrible in the last few years um, and actually have paid more to get good customer service. Well, AI can help there. You know, that's where it can provide a automated customer service that's actually useful. But I actually think people like to research travel. So I don't expect that we'll completely change the way that we search and book travel just because AI exists. It just seems like everything that you mentioned, the research portion, the search portion, the pictures portion, the reviews portion, it's housed under one company like TripAdvisor. You think that they would be able to harness it? Are they like a de facto winner that nobody potentially is looking at or thinking about? You're right. I think the, the challenge has been, which is true in a lot of internet companies, is consumers are a little bit stubborn about which companies they hand their money over to and which one they don't. And people have treated TripAdvisor like a, uh, you know, a, a utility, you know, a free source of information for a long time. And so I think, can they use it? You know, they have a huge amount of data. They have 
trustworthy data. It's consumer peer-to-peer reviews. They have all the photos. You know, they have all, all the information. So yes, they can use it. The challenge, I suppose, is going to be, can they charge for it? Because that's what they've always struggled to do in the past. Of course, making money off of it is the hardest part. Maybe if I could ask you a question about your hotel experience, which one is the best hotel experience that you've encountered? I mean, look, the memories are short. Just in the last week, I took a hot air balloon ride that went across the volcanoes and with my, my eldest son. And, that, you know, I think I'll, I'll remember that experience. And that's something we were able to arrange through the hotel we stayed at in Spain. So that kind of level of service, you know, is one thing that you're, you're always going to remember. Probably the other one, which is a little bit on the other side of the equation, is I stayed at a hotel in, in Venezuela many years ago and I, I walked through the wrong door. It was a very cheap hotel and I walked through the wrong door and I walked into the kitchen and there was a huge giant anteater in the kitchen facing me that then chased me out of the kitchen. And I don't think I'll remember that uh, in a hurry uh, as it then reared up and slashed at uh, one of my traveling companion's legs and slashed right through his uh, his denim jeans uh, with his claws. I was thankfully unharmed. So I suppose experiences like that don't go anywhere. But that's probably nothing to do with the hotel, apart from maybe it should have better signage over which door you should be walking through. Amazing. I'd love to see that door. Beware anteater. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, it's not like it was meant to be there. <laughs> this was like a very rural hotel, and I think they did feed it. I caught it a bit by surprise. Um, in terms of the very best hotel I've stayed at, I mean, I, I stayed at a, a safari lodge called Thunder in South Africa. And, uh, you know, I think that would be an, an experience with the amount of space and, you know, experience you've got to go with. And it shows there's still a role for greatly located independent hotels. You know, not every hotel needs to join a branded network if they've got a perfect location and a, and a, and a very unique experience. But, you know, there are a lot of fantastic branded hotels there um, in the world as well that, that are able to provide those kind of experiences. Yeah, I find some of the best hotels I've stayed at, it's the real estate that actually ends up being sort of the moat, yeah. the Fairmont in Hawaii. It's got the best sunsets in the world, according to TripAdvisor, uh, those sorts of things. I feel like those end up creating such a, a nice little travel moat. With that, Richard, I think that's a wonderful image and probably a great place to end this conversation. Uh, Richard, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening, everybody. You've been listening to the latest In The Know podcast from Bernstein Research with me, Sid Mulcahy, and Richard Clark. Please tune in for a new episode coming soon. If you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like or subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. If you do not have access to Bernstein's research, you can find it at BernsteinResearch.com, where you can also find important disclosures that we encourage you to review. Bernstein has no obligation to provide any updates or changes at any time in the future. All references and or market forecasts are correct at the date of recording. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the presenter and may not be the same as the views of Bernstein or its affiliates. Bernstein is not providing any financial, legal or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast and this should not be considered as investment advice. This podcast must not be copied, distributed, published or reproduced in whole or in part. None of us hold positions in any of the equities that we have discussed today.